our goal is always first and foremost to support those who are already doing such great things on this scene, whether that's musicians or presenters or journalists or anybody. So we want to continue to simply support and catalyze even more coverage of the jazz scene. We wanted to support all the people who are putting on great jazz shows in their clubs and in their restaurants. We wanted to support the musicians who are day in and day out hustling to to do their craft in a way that has integrity and reaches people. All of that, I think, is not mutually exclusive with presenting the music in a, in a new and personal way for us. That was Gio Rossinello. He was talking about Capital Bop, an organization he began and now operates with collaborator Luke Stewart. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Writer Gio Rossinello and musician Luke Stewart were used to seeing each other at one or another of Washington, D.C.'s many jazz clubs. The problem was they weren't seeing too many other people, especially people their own age. But rather than moaning and groaning, these two enterprising mid-20-somethings took action. They launched Capital Bop. Simply put, Capital Bop is an online clearinghouse for jazz that gives folks, among other things, a calendar of jazz events in the district. Capital Bop also presents DC Jazz Loft, which are monthly jazz sessions in small, offbeat venues throughout the city. Their goal is to shine a spotlight on the great music made in D.C. by local musicians, while enticing new and younger listeners to live jazz. But they can explain Capital Bop far better than I. Here's Gio Rossinello. Capital Bop is a website and generally an organization dedicated to promoting and spotlighting the D.C. jazz scene, which often means putting a spotlight on the clubs and the theaters that exist to put on this great music that we have in town, but it also means expanding the ways that people can listen to the live form of that music. So through our website, we like to cast a light on on those venues, the shows that are already happening, and also put out reviews of CDs and recordings uh, made by local artists. But then on the flip side, we like to have a part in expanding the ways that people get to experience the music. So we've, over the past year and a half, really dedicated ourselves to helping people think outside the box in terms of the ways that this music can be appreciated. And in the process, we've put on a number of shows of our own at non-traditional spaces, which we feel has been something that encourages a lot of people who aren't necessarily inclined to go to a jazz club or go to a theater um, it has helped them embrace the music and, in an unsuspecting kind of way, come across it just by saying, I want to go out and do something different this week. Luke Stewart. Likewise, through people gaining awareness of 
the contemporary jazz scene in DC, which is definitely among the the best scenes in the world, let alone the United States. It sort of opens up a gateway for a lot of people in in the work that we that we try to do in terms of bringing awareness to DC's very rich jazz history, history in the music from all different standpoints, approaches, all of that. And also we're sort of continuing a lineage of non-traditional spaces going all the way back to when jazz first started. Let's first clear up the name. Capital Bop, you are not clearly just interested in bop. You're you're interested in the spectrum of jazz. Absolutely. Correct. Okay. It was something of a rhythmic misnomer. Capitalbop.com. It's a very robust website where you have a very detailed calendar. You have a blog. You have video. You have audio. And that's one of the ways that people can see what's going on in jazz in Washington, D.C. Geo. We just want to make sure that people recognize that they can go out and enjoy this music at any point, any day of the week, any day of the year. You can go out and hear music in D.C., and it can be extremely virtuosic and exciting jazz. The thing that you mentioned about the calendar, uh, you called it robust. What it is is it's just a reflection of the sheer volume of stuff that's happening in this town because really the calendar is sort of the be- the best metaphor for why we started the site. It's just overflowing with shows that we get to write previews for. And I think our enthusiasm for the music comes through in those previews because we're, we're often talking about these musicians who live in D.C., work multiple nights a week in D.C. You can hear them at any number of clubs or theaters or restaurants and there's never any shortage of places to go to hear great jazz. So that the point is is simply to have a resource that consolidates all that information and lets people know. Well, how did the site begin? Well, Gio started the site, actually. he I'll let him explain more, but he launched it at the Roslyn Jazz Festival, where we initially came together. He was basically passing out flyers and things, and I was working with WPFW in broadcasting that event. And... We had met before, hung out a couple of times before. So when he asked me if I would like to write some articles or get involved in some kind of way, I said, sure. Essentially, I created the website to put a spotlight on the scene. We now do, as I mentioned, a lot of show presenting ourselves, but the mission originally was and has always remained primarily to cast light on what's already happening in this town. So... The calendar was the hub of my idea, and then around it grew, okay, let's write reviews of shows, let's do previews in-depth of the artists who are coming into town to do a big show at the Kennedy Center, or let's do a musician profile on this local legend. But yeah, the idea of the site was simply, I'm tired of going to all these amazing shows in town and not seeing anybody there. For there to be more uh, world-class musicians on stage than there are audience members. There was a disconnect that I perceived. So I said, there just needs to be a good messenger, partially because jazz is just a marginalized music, but also because a lot of those shows are recurring, so they're not newsy. They don't get a lot of coverage. I just wanted to create a calendar that would let people understand this is a city with one of the most multifaceted and also just voluminous jazz scenes that there is. So as soon as I started it, Luke said on that very first day we ran into each other, and he was actually 
very enthusiastic about the idea. So from then on, from the very first day forward, we partners in the whole endeavor. You were collaborators. I know you're from Mississippi. Yes. How did you discover jazz in D.C.? Well, I basically discovered jazz, period, in D.C. By the time I moved to to D.C., I was already an avid jazz listener just through, you know, record collecting and listening and all that stuff. Where I'm from is also 90 miles away from New Orleans. So in terms of jazz, I had heard that sort of ragtime New Orleans-style jazz a lot. And, you know, that was cool. It wasn't really, like, you know, touching me the way that the music that I was listening to on a CD did. So when I came here, the first time I had ever heard live bebop was at Twins Jazz. I saw the Sunny Fortune Quartet. I just remember walking in there and it being a really transformative experience for me. It was kind of like something out of a, I guess, this like fantasy world of jazz that I had in terms of, you know, you go upstairs, it's this club, this really small, intimate space. I don't remember there being that many people there. There was maybe five or so people. But to me, that sort of just added to the whole fantasy fulfillment that I was experiencing. And then just feeling, feeling the energy of the live music was really a a very powerful experience and as I continued to go out and because I'm because I'm a musician I I was sort of on the the stage side of it so I I did notice that at certain events there wouldn't be that many people and the people that I would talk to just like in my peer group jazz just wasn't on their radar at all. Why do you think younger people have not gravitated to jazz? Why isn't it on their radar screen? Luke. It's, it's not marketed to, to our generation. For some reason, jazz in a way has is, is evolved in a sense to completely influence and form and shape other styles of music that have come out of jazz. The most recent culturally defiant movement in music, hip-hop, there have been books written about how it's a continuation of the jazz lineage with its use of improvisation the rhythm, you you can say that hip-hop, in a way, is the next step for jazz. It's almost like we're dealing with this music so hard, and it's it's defining who we are so much. Anything else is almost, almost irrelevant. Geo. I think there's a lot of complicated cross-currents, obviously, that affect popularity and society's embrace of art and just any cultural phenomenon, right? But I think you can think of it like you can think of fashion, which is something that is an expression, a mode of expression for people, but it's also highly commodified and commercialized and dictated sort of by the winds and the tides of the commercial market. So what people were wearing in the 60s had to go out of fashion because, first of all, if your parents wore it, you you weren't going to want to wear it 
all of those forces work together in the same way in the music world so that one generation's will to self-actualization and expression forces them to create new musics and also the embrace of new technologies with which you can create music and also the deprivation of instruments in urban areas and the ending of music education programs. All of these things come together in a confluence that actually results in something like funk or hip-hop or whatever the next thing will be. But what's interesting is there might be that really hip thing that your dad used to wear that you pick it up when you're just getting over just, you know, reflexive rebellion and you say that I can really get down with that that tie looks good on me you know and it and it says something about who I am because my dad is also part of me and what's interesting about jazz is just the strength with which it's resonating with people who go for the hip hop go for the for the rock and roll and the electronic dance music of their day and then they also turn around and say but wait this music has a broader palette it has more colors musically than anything else I've ever dealt with and in its own way I can express myself even more robustly through this music than I feel like I can through the quote-unquote contemporary or mainstream musics so people are escaping these ideas that you must innovate you must separate yourself from the past and don't turn around and look backward people who are great musicians and who are most most concerned about representing themselves in the moment are finding a way to to let improvised and really dynamic music that is jazz let that be a way for them to channel their contemporary passions and that doesn't mean it needs to sound like John Coltrane it can sound like somebody who's been listening chiefly to hip hop but it's just such a it's just such a rich musical language that i think people in our generation are especially finding it uh useful to sort of refract all of their own musical tastes through jazz time of musical blossoming in the jazz world so people are beginning to embrace that mentality of saying it better be current and it better be now but it can also have the whole history of jazz contained within it so we have a lot of great young musicians doing that let's talk about DC Jazz Loft Luke well, so the uh, DC Jazz Loft uh, my band Laughing Man was which is a rock band which is a rock that's band. an indie rock band an indie rock band yes and we were tenants of uh, an artist space called Gold Leaf Studios. And basically it was a, a practice rehearsal space for many different bands over the years and many, many artists and photographers, sculptors, a lot of different people were in that space over the years. And we used it mainly as, a, as an area to you know, work on our material. And then eventually we started hosting shows there whenever we started uh, hosting shows called it Red Door there was a red door that you had to go into in, in order to get into our section of the building so Red Door was hosting different programs Gio and I uh, had started collaborating and he came by the space with the idea that we should be 
I'm doing some jazz in here. Give some Capital Bop sponsored events. DC Jazz Loft. Of which there had never been right. any shows. Right. Okay, describe what a jazz loft is. Geo. A couple things. Yeah, so, so a jazz loft, the idea, like so many things that we've been discussing, is historically rooted and it has a lot of precedent. But at the same time, it was definitely defined by its current surroundings and its place in, in the present community of, of the D.C. jazz scene. So a jazz loft is something that you can trace all the way back to the Harlem of the 1920s if you want to, where piano players used to get together at 4 a.m. after their gigs and quote-unquote cut all night, meaning outdo each other on the piano, and play cards and smoke cigars and play piano, and it was just for themselves. But the, but the time that the jazz loft itself really became a phenomenon was in the 50s and 60s uh, during the bebop era when musicians almost exclusively for themselves, again, would come together after their gigs in lofts in midtown Manhattan, particularly one that was run by a photographer for Life magazine who was a big jazz enthusiast and ended up taping all of all of the jam sessions that were hosted there at all hours. Uh, so now we have for posterity this incredible uh, archive of hundreds and hundreds of hours of tape from these phenomenal jam sessions and rehearsals. So now that's been, thanks to Duke University, that's been archived and we have this really great historical record of jazz lofts, which are just these amazing, smoky, intimate gatherings of musicians. And what's stunning about those is is the amount that the music is being created on its own terms and free from commercial interests and constraints of the racism of the day that dictated a lot of the club and performing venues and also just free from the need to sell drinks or deal with uptight club owners. So the music that was being created during those times crossed a lot of boundaries musically and culturally. And then in the 70s, the loft jazz movement, if you switch the words, was actually something that came about in the free jazz scene. So people like David Murray, Sam Rivers, major figures in the sort of the outer reaches of the jazz world, mostly in lower Manhattan, started to set up something that we see a lot of today in a slightly altered form, sort of artist-run performance and educational spaces and also rehearsal spaces. So these were lofts, mostly in lower Manhattan, where artists could work, could rehearse their bands, and then often just by virtue of sort of the artist's will to present his or her work, they would hold concerts too, and those would be open to the public. So actually, our lofts themselves from the very first have always had sort of more of that vibe of sort of the mingling of the public and the performer. It's not all the way into the club, but it's also not all the way into the musician's bedroom or or rehearsal space. It's somewhere in the middle. So explain to me what an evening is like at DC Jazz Loft. At the DC Jazz Loft. Mm -hmm. Well, Luke Stewart. Basically, you're experiencing jazz in a very intimate uh, location, not venue-sized at all. In and a small, in a small in room, a very small, in a smallish room. Yeah, there's no bartender. You, there's not like a table where you sit down and you're ordering food or drinks. There's no waiters. There's no bouncer. There's, there's no even stage. Really, yeah, there's no stage. There's no there, one. There's, there's no, no charge. They are suggested donation based. So money time comes in between sets when we would just go around and pass around the hat. Basically, you just have the opportunity to hear live music from people who live in your proximity. How many groups would I hear? 
we did anywhere between three and five per right. night, and we would always end in a jam session. There was a lot of heady energy going into the very first one we did. We had mm. five bands across the entire spectrum, from straight ahead, classic hard bop, to more composition-based, progressive acoustic jazz, to hard rock, fusion, free jazz stuff. And then we sort of realized that three was the was the optimal number because you can't really... It's the magic number. It's the magic number. So you can't hold a, an audience forever, but you can expose them to a range of music, different types of music just over the course of three sets. Now, why do you think the use of non-traditional spaces, why do you think that's such a draw? Well, because, like, like Gio said before, it's, it's a space... Firstly, for musicians to feel comfortable in stretching out. They don't come in with, with anything expected of them from the venue itself in terms of uh, how many people are you, are you going to get out tonight. Because the pressure gonna, is certainly on the musician to, to draw crowds if they're it, playing un, at a traditional venue. Unfortunately, yeah, in, in, this, in the current climate today. That's, that's one of the upside-down uh, phenomena of commercial music presenting today. Right, right. So basically, the musicians are more comfortable. That makes the audience comfortable. That makes the art that the audience is experiencing all that more moving, potentially, because they feel like they're a part of something special. So it automatically has this um, this sort of novelty that exists because it's it's in Credio Warehouse or it's in, in this shack in an alley. Can you articulate what happens when you hear music or you see art in a place that is completely unexpected. Mm, right. There's a couple things going on. In direct response to that, I, I do think that jazz itself is is a music that points out to us and holds up the joy of the unexpected. Mm -hmm. From top to bottom, that's what the music is about. The best jazz musicians find joy in, in surprise. Jason Moran, uh, the great jazz piano player, said the goal of the improvising musician is to connect to every moment mm. and I found that to be so beautiful because that is what we achieve when we listen to jazz even if you're an engaged listener who's giving yourself the credit and the opportunity to really enjoy it you're connecting to every single moment you're not saying oh this is the same chorus the same three chord chorus that came up a minute ago and I get to sing along again because I remember how it was last time and that's wonderful and that's a, that's an emotional resonance that pop music gives us but at the same time jazz doesn't really do that even when it does repeat a chorus there's an improvisation from Coleman Hawkins on down that twists it and turns it and changes it and that's why this music is is human right just like a space that's not clean and not this is where you sit down and be quiet and listen to the music. This part in the back is where you stand, and this is where you put your coat. Whereas jazz is not about that. Jazz is about spontaneity above all else. And then the, the, the other thing I would mention is what's cool about the jazz loft is we've always made it a very hospitable place for musicians to come and listen to each other. But at the same time, we've brought in audience members, and we've always had a strong cohort of people who are just casual listeners. So... It's sort of like having that conversation with musicians and realizing they're not speaking a language that I can't understand. It's like you have these musicians appreciating and feeding off of each other, both in the audience and on stage. But then you also get to bring in these people who, for the first time in their life, get to sort of see the music from a musician's perspective. It's like a 
a forbidden gathering that you don't necessarily, just like the space itself, that you don't necessarily feel like you ought to be privy to. Like, how did I get in here? How did I have the right to, to see it through these eyes? And it's like, well, because the music is just, it's for everyone, you know, and you're in the family now when you're at the loft. And have you been drawing younger audiences to DC Jazz Loft? Absolutely, and and that's that's one of the things about the audience at these particular venues is that a lot of times these these venues have attracted a, a younger audience just because of the the programming that typically goes in these venues. Typically, you know, more of the DIY aesthetic goes into this, so you get a lot of twenty somethings. That was actually one of the things that was so powerful about the first few lofts was that we were basically almost infiltrating into this other world, bringing this music that that isn't on our generation's radar, and we were implanting it right in this space that's associated with indie rock bands, associated with neo-folk movements, and we were putting jazz like right in their face, basically. One of the, the greatest compliments that, that we got was um, people would come up to us and say, this is the first time I've ever seen jazz live, and they would be you know, our age or younger. And, and you're in your mid-20s. Yes. Mm-hmm. You have a very small staff. Yeah, well, we are the staff. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at it. Where did you get the money to keep this going? What money? This is not a highly monetary uh, enterprise yet. <laughs> Luke is essentially a volunteer entirely Mm. i've been a volunteer in pretty much every way except that when sometimes we'll sell advertising for the website and that'll help recoup a little bit of the expenses and the time that i put into maintaining the site did you use kickstarter that's just for the festival when we present major live events which we do essentially once a year at the dc jazz festival we do a series of shows that we've just completed our second annual sort of we call it the dc jazz loft series at the dc jazz festival we will get big donations from supporters uh, individuals and also through a kickstarter campaign and that will help us fund working with not necessarily bigger venues but a variety of venues that are of the sort of aesthetic that we like the money will also help us bring in bigger acts and it will help recoup some of the time and effort that we put in. Now, when did Capital Bob start? September of 2010. And you've been at DC Jazz Fest for two years already? Mm-hmm. That's pretty quick. What do you bring to DC Jazz Fest, and what does DC Jazz Fest bring to you? Firstly, DC Jazz Festival brings to us advertising, lots and lots of really great advertising. And secondly, they provide us with a lot of support in the way of of mentorship in terms of presenting on that scale of an operation an internationally renowned and known festival basically the the dc jazz festival approached us because they saw that we were getting the young audiences which is the audience that they have a hard time attracting and so we bring them that we also bring them very programming the dc jazz festival tends to cater to certain uh, approaches to the music, certain audiences. So we, we present music that is reflective of what's going on now in jazz, the really revolutionary sounds of today. Yeah, we provide them with an expanded view of what jazz is today mm-hmm. by really bringing them a number of musicians, both locally and nationally, who are, as Luke said, on the cutting edge of, of today's innovations in jazz. We provide them, like he also mentioned, 
with an entree to younger audiences and just certain different types of audiences who might not otherwise be paying attention to the jazz world uh, in D.C., let alone the festival itself. And then I think the third thing is what we've already discussed in depth, uh, which is that we expand the D.C. Jazz Festival's notion of what it means to present jazz and where jazz belongs. We present jazz during the festival at a number of venues, none of which ever would be part of the festival without our involvement. You take a very democratic view of jazz. We do. We do. Exactly. Uh, A populist one. And we we do strive to find sort of off-the-beaten-path venues, spots that never really have hosted jazz before. What's next for jazz? What's next? Well, I mean, jazz is... Jazz is next. next. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) What's next for Capital Bop? Uh, following what's yeah. next in jazz. <laughs> we want to continue to present, we want to continue to innovate naturally, which is the impulse of every great jazz musician. And we want to make sure that, that our innovations have to do with how we serve as messengers so that we're bringing the people the word of, of the music um, in the best way possible. Whether that's incorporating more video, incorporating more audio, making our site better, letting people interact more with the site, post their own video. They might have taken a performances. You know, we have a, a lot of ambition in terms of amping up the, the quality of, of our online product. At the same time, we want to make sure that we get into every nook and cranny of D.C. and continue to sort of liberate the idea of, of how the music can be heard and presented. So that's what's next, is continuing to break down the barriers between jazz and different spaces so that it can reach as many different people with as many different viewpoints as possible. Anything to add, Luke? I mean, that's pretty much it. Just continue what we're doing in terms of the coverage of the the jazz scene, continuing with our D.C. jazz loss. And that's every month? Yes, every second Sunday. Every second Sunday of the month. Mm -hmm. There you go. Well, Luke Stewart, Gio Rosanello, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, and thanks for all the good work for jazz. Thank Thank you. you. That was Luke Stewart and Gio Rusinello of Capital Bop. To find out more about Capital Bop and jazz in Washington, D.C., go to capitalbop.com. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. All the music we used today was recorded live. We heard Luke Stewart and his jazz group, Trio Trio, and the Chris Fun Trio performing A Change Is Gonna Come. They were recorded at DC Jazz Loft. Our thanks to the musicians and Capital Pop. We also heard an excerpt from the Sunny Fortune Quartet playing in Waves of Dreams from a live recording at the Sweet Rhythm. Use courtesy of Sunny Fortune. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov, and now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, we learn about the healing power of art for service members suffering from PTSD with veteran and author Ron Capps. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>